Well, hopefully by now you have noticed uh, that I am not Senior Pastor Mark Kring. Um, I didn't ask him what he was doing this week. I assumed it was vacation, but knowing uh, Pastor Mark, he's probably like building a masterpiece table or maybe he's wrestling a bear or something. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to ask him next week when he gets back. But we're going we're gonna to take a break from our E2E study and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6 today. So if you brought your Bible and you want to flip there, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, there's some in the chairs underneath. Hey, if you don't own a Bible, man, it would make my day if we could give you one. There are some free ones back at the uh, Welcome Center. Those are there for you. If you don't own one, please let us give you one. Uh, and if that's not your, your thing to open a Bible, we're going to put the verses behind me as well. And so Galatians chapter 6, I'm going to buy you a quick minute. And I'm going to do a free plug for youth group because I have the mic and they can't say no. Um, so if you didn't know, I am the youth pastor. I'm also the director of finance, um, but I'm the youth pastor. And today we're going to do a Nerf gun war at youth group. And so we are encouraging students, if you own a Nerf gun, please bring it. If you don't own one, we got plenty of extras. If Nerf gun's not your thing, that's okay. Like we have some other activities lined up for you to do. Please still come to youth group for that. Uh, middle school, that is uh, going to be from 4 to 6. High school, it's 6.30 to 8.30. That's not here, as fun as that would be in the auditorium to be doing a Norfolk gun war. We're going to be at the old building, okay? So if you have any other questions, please come find me. Uh, you can find it on the website, or you can email me if you're watching online at Kyle at NH Church. I would love just to give you some more information about that. All right. I have a tradition where, when feasible, I, I just like to read the passage out in front of us. I like to get a lay of the land. And so we're going to do that. We're in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and, and this is what it says. It's written, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ for if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his work, and then he will have reason for boasting, but to himself alone and not to another. For each one will bear his own load. The word of the Lord. Um, hopefully that whets your appetite. Before we get into this passage, though, we got to set the context up a little bit. We've been in Genesis for a while. Now we're fast-forwarding all the way to Galatians. And uh, when this letter is written, what happens is Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and then 20 years passes, right? The gospel is exploding everywhere. And one of the people who has been sharing the gospel, especially to non-Jewish people, is the apostle Paul. He is the one that writes this letter, and he is actually the one that helps found the churches in Galatia. Uh, but he can't stay. He's got to leave, and so he just keeps checking in with them to see how they're doing. And, and he gets some really alarming news, some really disturbing news. He says in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there, there have been these false teachers that have snuck into the Galatian church since Paul left. And what they were basically saying was, yes, you need Jesus for salvation. But Jesus was a Jew, so you really need to be Jewish too. You got to be circumcised. You have to fulfill the Mosaic law 
or else your salvation is not valid. They're basically telling people, like, put that bacon down. You cannot eat that anymore. And, and Paul is very sassy, right? He writes this very sassy letter to the Galatians. He's like, what are you doing? Like, why would you swap out the gospel? Why are you listening to this distorted gospel? We're picking up at the end of the letter where, where Paul has already said that those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If I was going to reword that, it would be that those who belong to Jesus are putting to death the ungodly things in their lives. And so it raises the question, what if you're a believer in Jesus and you're, you're not going to war with your sin? What if you're not putting it to death, but you're embracing it? And that leads us to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's written, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. I was uh, recently reading a story about a runner who was running in the New York City Marathon. And it was his 25th time running this marathon, which some of you are probably thinking like, why would you do that to yourself? And as a marathon runner myself, I would say, I have no idea. Like it, it takes me a year or two to forget what that process was like and sign up for the next one. But evidently this guy is wired for it, he loves it. And so he shows up to the race day, he waits for the, run, the gun to go off, and he starts at it. He's one mile, two mile, three miles into the race. He's doing great. Four mile, five miles, six miles into the race, and he is making this his day. He gets to the halfway point, and he, he checks his time. He's at an hour and 59 minutes right where he wants to be. He keeps going. He goes over the bridge. He turns onto First Avenue, and there is this thunderous crowd around him. Like, they are cheering. They are supporting. It is electric. But amidst all that noise, he hears what, what sounds like a call for help. And so he, he looks around and he sees a runner laying on the ground with another runner friend standing next to her. And, and that's not uncommon, right? Like people get cramps, people just hit that wall, they can't do anymore. Sometimes people get dehydrated. But, but he veers off, he slows down to come check it out. And as soon as he gets there, he, he realizes that, that something's not right. Like, she's not breathing. She is blue in the face. She's lost consciousness. And so he quickly checks her pulse, and he can't find a heartbeat. Can you imagine how much panic would set in for you? How much anxiety would be bubbling up if you were in that position? Like, how would you respond? That is the picture that Paul is going to paint for us in verse 1. You have a believer that's lying at your feet, and they're not declared dead, but they're not breathing either. Paul imagines a hypothetical situation. He says, even if, and it's in which a believer is caught in a wrongdoing. Now, the word for wrongdoing is paraptima, and it carries this image of taking a false step. This is not just a physical, like, stubbing of your toe, though. This is not something minor. This is someone who was following Jesus and they have made a major detour. They have started stumbling away from Jesus, and it is not good. He's, they're stepping out of line in their pursuit of Jesus. And just before this, Paul started listing off what some of these wrongdoings could look like. He said in Galatians 5, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. 
which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Like he can't even create a full list, so he has to end it with things like these. A wrongdoing, a paraptima, is anything that puts you out of step with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, I think sometimes people like to boil Christianity down to just obeying these lists of religious rules, right? And you're either obeying these rules or you're not obeying these rules, but that's not what the Bible says. It's not just about obeying some silly religious rules. It's that you are taking a breath of air in life or you are suffocating yourself. That is what is at stake. So when, if you get drunk on the weekend, like that's paraptima. That is suffocation. If you're doing something sexual outside of marriage, that's paraptima. If you have outbursts of anger in this deep-seated envy, that's paraptima. It is death. It is decay. Paul is not giving the Galatian church license to just pester one another. You know, he's not telling them to just nag each other to death. This is a serious issue. He's saying if someone is not doing battle against their sin, if they are embracing their sin, then that's a dangerous place to be. We we don't mess around with that. That's as though you've come across a believer who's not declared dead, but they're not breathing either. Like they are blue in the face. And so Paul commands, he doesn't suggest, He doesn't gently nudge and say, you know, if you get around to it, he commands the spiritual to restore them. Now, in our story, the runner came across someone who was actually not breathing, right? And so he jumps into chest compressions, but it doesn't work. And so he has to call out to the police officer way down the road. He says, I need a defibrillator. And the police officer hears him and takes off, goes to the nurse aid station, comes back in record time. They set the voltage up, and he gets to it. He puts the pads on and he yells, clear, and electricity goes through, but nothing happens. He tries it again, clear, another shock, no movements. Third time, clear, nothing's going on. Like she, she's not even moving. Fourth time, clear, and this time she twitches. This time air starts to enter her lungs and her heart starts beating again. Now she doesn't regain consciousness but she's stable enough where they can load her into an ambulance and she gets taken down to the hospital and she recovers. When Paul says that we need to restore one another, it's the image that there is someone who is a follower of Jesus, who is not declared dead, but they're not breathing either. He's saying you need to help them. And so he is putting his people in strategic places. He's putting us in strategic places at the right time, at the right place to intervene. And maybe that's you today. When Paul says restore, he means to realign to a former condition of well-being. That word in other context, it's been used in the Bible to rebuild the walls in Ezra. It's been used to mend the fishing nets in Matthew. In, In Greek, that's a medical term, where when a bone is out of place, it's that painful process of like crunching it back in, I don't know if that's how it works, but I imagine crunching it back in place, like it is realigning to a condition of former well-being.
being. And in Galatians, Paul is saying, we need to realign people to Jesus. We need to restore people to life. And here's where the tension comes in. Man, our flesh will whisper to us, I don't want to do that. I don't want to restore someone. Like, that's uncomfortable. That, that could cause some tension in my life. What if they don't understand? What if they start attacking me? What if I lose a friend? Like, some of us hate confrontation. Like, you're probably getting butterflies in your stomach right now as you start to imagine it. I see you tensing up. It's okay. Take a breath. Breathe. It's okay. And then there's some on the opposite spectrum where, like, you're revving up at this. You're like, yes, you know, show me. Who do I need to set straight? I will confront them. And it's not the confrontation part. It's the spirit of gentleness that's going to be a problem. You need both. That's what makes it so hard. We have to have this steadfastness of confrontation as well as the spirit of gentleness. And if you have been around the church for a while, then you may remember that gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. What that means is as we follow Jesus, as we are believing about what God did and what he says about himself, gentleness is supposed to be growing in our souls. And it's not there just to take up space. Like that gentleness is supposed to be used in our interactions. And evidently, it's supposed to be used when we restore one another. And so listen when I say this, because this is important. You will never restore someone well. You will never restore someone well if you are not looking to Jesus, if you're not in the Spirit while you're doing it. When Jesus first calls us to follow him, like he doesn't do that with shame. He doesn't just like bash us for our sins. He doesn't be, he's not condescending. He's not, what an inconvenience you are that I have to come down from heaven to help you. That's not his tone. Like he is gentle. The spirit of gentleness is not new to us who are believers. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is how we were first called. This is what we have tasted if you're a believer. And let me hit the pause button and just say, if you're not a believer yet, like if you're still wrestling with what you believe, like Jesus is longing to make you part of the family. He is not spring-loaded to just bash you for your sins or to shame you. He is spring-loaded to forgive you. He wants to show you how much of a God of mercy and compassion he is. I love in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, he tells this parable about the prodigal son, where a father had two sons, and one of the sons just supremely hurts his dad. Like, he grows up, and he basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your money. Like, I want to be free. And so his dad is like, okay, you can have half the family inheritance. And that son takes it, and he squanders it. He uses it on worthless things. And the story picks up with him sleeping with pigs, realizing what a fool that he's been. And so he makes the plan. He's going to come back to his dad. And he's not going to be asked to be part of the family because he's ruined that. Like, there's no chance that's happening. But maybe his dad would be gracious enough to let him be a hired servant. And so he makes his way back. And before he even gets to the driveway, his dad sees him. And he runs out and he embraces him. Like he doesn't wait for an apology. There is so much gentleness. There is so much mercy, so much love that the father has. And Jesus says, that's who the father is. 
That is who God is. He is not spring-loaded to just bash us for our sins. He's spring-loaded to forgive us. And if you're not a believer yet, come and taste that. Like he is offering forgiveness for you for what you've done. Because ultimately, these sins that we do are suffocation. They're going to choke us. And Jesus is like, I, I have something so much better than that. I have fulfillment for you. When we become a believer, that attitude doesn't change. God doesn't suddenly get harsh with us. He is still spring-loaded to forgive. He is still tender towards our sins. And he tells us that we need to be tender towards the sins of other believers. So we have this line to straddle. Like it's a serious matter. Someone is blue in the face. You can't just brush that off and be like, uh, it's, it's probably okay. But you also can't approach it from a period, a, a, a position of condescension. You can't be coming down on them like, I'm so much better than you. Look at what you're doing wrong. No, no. Spirit of gentleness. And there's a, a pastor in the 20th century that displayed this really well. His name is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may recognize the name. Um, but God had been putting another prominent pastor on his heart who stood very close to where he was in his theology, but he was just a divisive preacher. Like every time he taught, it was pitting Christian against Christian, and they were tearing each other apart. And so he started praying about that. God, what do you want me to do? And he eventually had a chance to get coffee with them in the garden, and they were discussing all kinds of different issues when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a chance to share his heart. And, of course, the other pastor is processing it, and he starts pushing back. He starts arguing about why he's right to do this. And it's civil argument, right? Like, it's not out of control, but they are civilly arguing. And I want to read an excerpt of that. The other prominent pastor said, well, he queried, what about this? You remember Paul in Galatians 2? He had to withstand Peter to the face. He did not want to do it. Peter was an older apostle, a leader, and so on. Paul did it very reluctantly, but he had to do it for the sake of truth. I'm in exactly that same position. What do you say to that? And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I would say this, that the effect of what Paul did was to win Peter round to his way of thinking. He still calls him our beloved brother, Paul. Can you say the same thing about the people whom you attack? And a silence started settled. The ar argument stopped. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he didn't stop. Like he continued wooing him. He said, you used to be known as the Canadian Spurgeon, and you were. You were an outstanding man in intellect, in preaching gifts, in every other respect. But over the university business in the early 20s, you suddenly changed, and you became negatory and denunciatory. I feel it's ruined your ministry. Why don't you come back? Drop all this. Preach the gospel to people positively and win them. And as they drove back in the car, the prominent pastor said, I, I've never been spoken to like this in my life before, and I am most grateful for you. See, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he straddled that line. He was steadfast in confronting, but he was gentle and winsome. And that is how I want to be if I have to confront someone. I want to be gentle and winsome. I want to be steadfast, regardless of if they're grateful for it or not. Paul adds at the end of verse 1, he says, keep an eye on yourself. Like, don't be tempted in the same way. If you're trying to restore someone, 
and you have the same sin that you're protecting in your life, or you have your own pet sin that you don't want to let go of, that you don't want to do battle against, he says, that's not helping. That's being hypocritical. We're commanded to restore with gentleness. That is the goal that we're trying to get to. And Paul is going to use the rest of this passage to refine that command. He clarifies that the ones who are supposed to do the restoring are those who are spiritual. Now, one of the first times I was preaching, I had someone come up after the service, and and they thanked me for my message, and, and they brought up the need for a new ministry about a problem that I raised. And I said, you're right. Like, we need that. I started getting excited. I'm like, maybe God is putting that on your heart to be the champion of that, to help lead that. And they looked at me very shocked, and they said, oh, no, 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 I don't think so. I'm going to leave this in your capable hands. And they briskly turned away, and they, like, started walking fast before I could say another word. Now, I don't don't tell this story to pick on that person. They've actually since gone to be with the Lord. But it illustrates a point, doesn't it? Like, we're okay with restoration as long as it's someone else who's spiritual that has to do it. You know, I I think there's this, this weird thing that only the pastors and the elders or the Stephen ministers can do the spiritual work in the church. And Paul just shuts that down in here. He says that there's not two classes of people. It's not like there's the spiritual and the leftovers. No, no, that's not what's going on. He says, if you belong to Jesus, you are spiritual. In fact, you can't actually be spiritual. You can't be of the spirit unless you believe in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. The command to restore, it's for all believers. There's no tiptoeing around it. One of the reasons the New York City Marathon runner, one of the reasons he stopped was because he was a medical professional. Like it was ingrained in him that he helps people. That's what he does. And Paul is simply saying, look, if you're spiritual, if you believe in Jesus, then do spiritual things. Restore one another. If you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then why would you not want to restore someone to that? What is keeping you from doing that? Paul continues, he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I'm grateful that Paul lives in our reality. I'm grateful that God gives this command because he doesn't try to paint it as something easy. He says, bear one another's burdens. And undoubtedly, Paul is talking about the burden of restoration. That is a heavy thing. He's not, he's not tiptoeing around that and trying to paint that off as something really easy that's not going to be a problem. But he leaves it vague. Like he's vague when he says bear each other's burdens because we have so many different burdens in our lives. Like maybe you have a burden of grief right now. Maybe you have a burden of financial trouble. Maybe you have a burden of guilt. Or maybe life is just exhausting you. Like, no one is immune to having burdens in their lives. I'm not immune to having burdens in my life. I need other people to come help carry the load with me. It's what makes us human. And the word for burden is baros. It's literally this really heavy weight that is required to be carried for a long distance. I think we're people that carry heavy weights in our lives, even if it doesn't look like it on the outside. Paul commands us to bear each other's burdens, sustain the heaviness of other people. The command to restore, it is 
burdensome. That is true. The thing about bearing burdens, though, is you can't actually do that well if you don't get close to them. Like if I'm physically carrying a heavy rock, you can't just yell for me across the hall, you need help? Oh, okay. No, no, no. you got to get right up next to me to help lift some of that with me. And the same is true relationally. Like if we are not investing time in each other, if we are not asking questions of below March Madness, you know, if we're not going subterranean in our questions, we're not going to bear the burdens of each other well. I love that we have Stephen ministry. That's a great place to start if you have burdens and you don't know where to go with it. But I think it's really easy just to think, oh, Stephen ministry's got that. I'm good. And, and that's not true. Like, I hope you're coming to men's study or ladies' study or small groups or greenhouse or youth group to renew your mind, yes, to learn about God, yes, but also to invest in other people's lives. Like, ask good questions of other people while you're there. We're not made to just come to service on Sunday, stay here for an hour, and then keep our head down and do the rest of the work. Or to live stream one hour on a Sunday and not ingrain ourselves with any other community. Like, that is not what God has for us. There's a mom in Australia who loved watching her boys surf. She was a paraplegic and she was wheelchair bound, so, so she would get as close as she could to the ocean. And eventually, one of the family friends noticed her. He noticed that there was a longing in her that she just couldn't experience the ocean. And so he came up with a crazy idea. He's like, hey, well, what if I duct taped you to my back and we went surfing together? And as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, no, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Like, you, you get points for trying. Like, that's great to get close and see the burden and try to help, but that's not realistic. I'm pretty sure that's dangerous. But she agrees to it. And so a couple of rolls of duct tape later, he's got this 88-pound woman on him, and they are paddling out to the ocean, and, and they catch a wave, and they surf. Like, they succeed and they continue doing it for a long time. It changes her. Now, please do not do that. That's not why I'm telling this story. I'm not liable for that, okay? Do not come at me with that. But if that man, if that younger family friend, if he had a hard truth to share with that woman, with the mom, do you think that she would listen a little closer? Do you think that he has won a little more admiration and respect? Do you think that his words carry more weight? I think one of the reasons Paul puts this command to bear one another's burdens right after the command to restore is one, because it is burdensome. Like restoring is heavy, but also if we are bearing each other's burdens well, like if we are showing them our heart and we are helping each other lift heaviness in our lives, then we get a better opportunity to realign them to Jesus. Like that, that just helps the whole process. There's a Proverbs in 27, uh, 6 that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The command to restore, it may not apply to you today. Like, please hear me say that. I'm not saying go on a witch hunt. I'm not saying nag people to death over these small, minor things. Like for some of you, you're going to put this in the back of your mind as a back burner. But the command to bear each other's burdens is applicable today. And if you are doing that well, 
then if there ever does come a time where you need to realign someone to Jesus, they know your heart. They know that you're not just trying to be picky. They know that you're just not trying to bash them over the head for their wrongdoing. They know that you care about them. Ultimately, the way we bear each other's burdens is linked with the way we fulfill the law of Christ. And there's some confusion on what the law of Christ is. Like, if you didn't know this, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? It is his title. It is his title as the Messiah, the Christ. There's nowhere in Scripture that specifically states what the law of Christ is, but it's clearly intended to point to the person in the work of Jesus. Like, it's clearly intended to point to his love. Now, remember the context. Galatians, they have been being told that they need to fulfill the Mosaic law. And Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus fulfilled that. You don't need to fulfill the Mosaic law. You need to fulfill the law of Christ. And what he means is, you need to be looking at Jesus. Like, did Jesus bear our burdens? I think so. Like, he didn't just get close to us. He got extremely, uncomfortably close to us, right? Like, he didn't call down from heaven, you're doing great. No, no, no. He entered into humanity, and he bore our sins. He walked with us through the grime. Look at the way the prophet Isaiah describes what the Christ will do when he comes, which Jesus has now already fulfilled. But it's in Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, however... It was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, humiliated, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoing. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, I don't want to rip this out of context. This is talking about Jesus' work on the cross. Like, yes and amen, this is what Jesus did for us when he was on the cross but it also reflects his willingness to bear our burdens. Like he is going to walk through the grime with us at whatever expense to himself it costs. I like the insight one scholar said. Um, he's quoted as saying, a dim gospel makes a cold Christian, and a distant Savior makes a halting, hesitating disciple. I love that. Look, if you have a dim view of the gospel, you're not going to want to bear one another's burdens. You're going to be a cold Christian. But if you're seeing the gospel up close, like if you're seeing the way that Jesus spared no expense for you, the way he got extremely close to you, the way he bore your sins, that's going to change everything. Like you stop seeing the burdens of other people as frustrations. You stop seeing them as chores, as interruptions, and they start to become privileges. It starts to become the reason that we're here at all. The command to restore, it is burdensome. There's no getting around that. But it's also a privilege. Not all people believe this, evidently, because Paul has to write in verse 3, For if anyone thinks that he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting, but to himself alone and not to another. Imagine for me if that runner came across the woman that was blue in the face and he said, oh, oh, gee, I wish I could help. It's my 25th marathon, though. I got to get my PR. I got, there's some other people around. I would call a little louder. I'm sure you'll find someone. And then he disappeared and started running away. Like, would that reveal something about him a little bit? Would that reveal his heart? 
Like, it's so nonsensical that you can't even imagine someone doing that. But do we do that spiritually? If we think we're a mature Christian, if we think we're something because we know so much of the Bible and we've been to so many sermons, but we're unwilling to lift a finger to raise someone's burdens, that we're unwilling to restore someone who's in our life that believes in Jesus but isn't following him, then Paul says you're deceived. Like that, you're creating a false narrative in your head. That is not reality. The command to restore, it reveals our own hearts. And so we must be examining our work. Some translations will say, test our own work or prove our own work. But examining ourselves in regards to what? Like not each other. Like God, I hate to tell you, God does not grade on a curve. He's not like, well, these people were way worse than you. You were a little better, so good job. Like that, that's not how he operates. So what do we examine ourselves compared to? Well, it, it's the law of Christ. It's the person and work of Jesus. We are called to test our actions against Jesus' life. Are, are there inconsistencies there? Are there gaps? Like we love when Jesus flips the tables in the temple. You better believe I'm going to try that at bedtime sometime, you know. But what about the way he talks to the woman at the well? Are we gentle like that? What about the way he's interrupted by the woman who's hemorrhaging? Do we handle interruptions in our life for other people like that? What about the way he hangs out with Zacchaeus, who is an outcast? Like, are we actually instead pursuing the wrongdoings that put Jesus on the cross himself? Paul says, do a self-assessment. And then there's going to be a time of future boasting, and it's be because of what you've done, not in comparison to what everyone else is doing. And boasting, to be fair, like boasting, it's a negative jab in Scripture. It, and it's because we hijack boasting, right? We boast about how great we are or how great our March Madness team is. I had to sneak that one in there. Um, but God always slams that down. Like that, that's not the right way to boast. The boasting Paul's talking about here isn't puffing ourselves up is better. It's not an overreach. It's taking satisfaction in our work. It's being glad that we're aligning ourselves to Jesus, not because we're better than others, but because we're choosing what is good, what is life. It's okay to take satisfaction in that. And Paul adds a clarifier. He says in verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. Now, doesn't that sound like a blatant contradiction? You just told us we have to bear the burdens of others. Now you're saying we have to bear our own load? Which is it? Make up your mind, Paul. And some people try to explain that away by saying, oh, well, when Paul was saying bear each other's burdens, he's using baros. But here for load, it's forshian. But I don't think that actually holds up. Like, those are synonyms. He's talking about the same thing here. What he does do is he changes tenses. He says, right now, present tense, we need to bear each other's burdens. But future tense... Each one will bear his own load. The command to restore, it doesn't remove ownership of sin. There is a sense in which we can and are commanded to help each other right now. But ultimately, just like God doesn't grade on a curve, the ownership of our work, the ownership of our sin, it doesn't lean on someone else. Like if we try to align someone and we do everything right, and they still spit in our face and they get offended, we're not responsible for their decision. Like they are responsible for their own sin. Ultimately, we make choices and we will stand before the Heavenly Father to give an account to them. 
For believers, that's not judgment of heaven and hell. Like Jesus has taken your sins away. There is therefore now no condemnation for our sins. But there is a judgment of reward and loss. Like there are still consequences for the way we live our lives now. And so Paul says, you will have to bear your own load. Like you are responsible for yourself. Are we taking ownership of our wrongdoings, New Hope? Or do you have a list of people that you're going to blame? Do you have a list of reasons of why your wrongdoing is okay and why you're justified to continue, even though it's out of step with who Jesus is? The command to restore, man, it can be uncomfortable. It can be heavy. It can be hard. It can reveal some wicked things in our soul, in our reluctance to do it. But if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, like if that is foundational to who Jesus is in your mind, then what's keeping you from restoring one another? Can you possibly have a good reason to not pick a brother or sister up and realign them to Jesus? In our marathon, after the, the woman who stopped breathing was ambulanced away, the runner starts running again. And he makes it to his family, and suddenly all of the emotion, all of the reality of what he just did catches up with him, and he just starts weeping, starts sobbing. Is that what it's going to be like for us when we get to heaven? Like, is the weight of reality going to come up against us? Are we going to see what restoration actually is, and it's going to mean so much more then? I think so. If you have someone in your life who says that they're a believer and, and they're not following Jesus, isn't that worth taking the opportunity? Like, if you see someone who needs uh, a burden to be bared, are you willing to step into that? That is what this is all about. If you desperately want to do this, but you just don't know how, that's never been modeled for you, you've never seen that done well before, I tried to give you a starting point in the notes. There's some questions to pray through, there's a resource to go in. Uh, you can walk out with those today, you can download them online if you're watching online, but those are there for you. After services, man, we are here for you. We have pastors and elders that just want to pray with you. Whatever you're walking through, whatever you need help with, we are here for you. We're a family, New Hope. Like, you're not alone in this. Let us help bear each other's burdens. Take that initiative in other people's lives. Look, if we haven't met before, I would love to talk to you. I would love to hear your story. If there's anything I can do to help, please let me be a resource. I'm going to pray to end our time, and then we'll, we'll dismiss. Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you that you are a God that bears burdens well, that you do not shrink from the ugly things in our lives, that you don't shrink from the way we reject you again and again, but you just keep extending us grace and peace, and you want us to come back into the fold. And so I pray for those that, that have been doing wrongdoing, Lord, that you'd lay it heavy on their hearts, that they would come and find peace and grace and mercy in you. I pray for those that don't know your name, Lord, that they would wrestle with who you are and they would see how good you are and come into the family. I pray for believers that we would bear each other's burdens well, that we would be a church, Lord, that bears each other's burdens well. Please lay that on us. Please put that on our heart this week. We're so grateful for your son, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. It's good to see you. Have a great rest of your week.